Last week, the Apostle Paul addressed us uh, in Philippians 2, and, and he opened by speaking about, by saying, if there is any encouragement in Christ, if there is any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy, make my joy complete. And so what I wanted to do is to just take a moment um, to uh, reflect with you on the kindness of God to me over the last 14 years, very quickly. Um, I've been a believer for about 14 years. I came to know Christ on Thanksgiving Day, so this, this year on Thanksgiving Day, I will celebrate 14 years of being a believer. Um, and God has been very kind to me. Um, there has been uh, much obedience and growth in my life since then, but there's, there's also been disobedience. There's been stubbornness, and he has uh, persevered with me, and, and I'm thankful for that. Uh, over 14 years, um, uh, I, I met my, my wife. We have five children, and, and they each have been a specific blessing to our family in a specific season, um, drawing out the, um, uh, the need for sanctification in me. Um, my, my children do that. My wife does not. Um, she, uh, she, she does help me to see my own need for sanctification. I appreciate that. Um, over that 14 year period, I've been able to see my parents, uh, who were married 20 years, divorced 20 years, be reconciled. They've been married for, uh, about five years now. Uh, they're visiting with us today. I'm thankful for them and the way that God is growing them. Um, I've seen, um, my dad come to Christ, my older brother come to Christ, uh, two very good friends, uh, who I all knew before uh, I was a believer, all come to Christ. I've seen God use me to do things that I can't do, that, that are inexplicable in and of myself. Um, God has been very kind to me. Uh, and if you know me, uh, you, you would know that it's not because of what I do or my own personal goodness and righteousness. It's all because of God's grace. And so in reflecting on that uh, with you, I want to encourage you to be reflective on the kindness of God towards you, especially as we lead up to Thanksgiving, hopefully that's a season where you, uh, where you do uh, function very thankfully, theologically thankfully, like we talked about last week. Thankful for who God is and the way that he's uh, acted in you, not for just what he's given you, but for who he's making you, who he is and how he's making you something like him. So as we, uh, as we get into the word this morning, I want to encourage you to don't forget what happened last week. You know, this is really a two-part deal. I usually teach um, verses 1 through 11 together because they, uh, they work together, they walk together. And so um, it was a blessing to be able to kind of take a breath uh, this week from, from last week. Last week was kind of like waterboarding. I mean, I mean that, sermons on humility, they just, they just hold you under, you know, and, and, and they can kind of be overwhelming. And so um, personal humility can be kind of like this. A bit overwhelming. A, a personal pursuit of personal humility can be kind of like uh, building a, a Lego version of the Eiffel Tower to scale. It can be a bit overwhelming. It can be hard. It can be somewhat oppressive. It can, it can uh, feel like you're trying to build this, this structure in the dark by yourself. I know what Legos are, and I know what the Eiffel Tower is, but I don't know how to get my pile of Legos to look like the Eiffel Tower. I can barely even see my Legos. I need help. 
I need something to imitate. I need a prototype. I need something to look at. I usually throw directions away. I just kind of look at the picture on the box. I need something to look at. I need to know why I should even be building a tower. Personal pursuit of humility can, can be like that. And last week, Paul gave us the pile of Legos. He dumped the box over, as it were, on the floor and said, y'all get to work building your tower. He even told us how to build it. Do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit, but consider others better than yourselves. He, he told us how to do it. But the tower of corporate unity through personal humility will not be built through know-how. It is not simply a practical endeavor because the tower we are being asked to build can only be seen in Christ. We must behold him and his life in order to truly embark on the endeavor of humility. His life sheds light on the messy pile of Legos that is our life and our life together. He is our model. He is what we are building a life together after. He is the prototype. Likewise, his purpose has to be our purpose. The end of his humility has to be our end. And so this morning we will see the prototype and the purpose of Christ's personal humility. Will you pray with me? Father, we do ask that you would shine your light, the light that radiates from who Christ is onto our messy pile of life, the pride that remains, the pride that uh, flows through even our closest relationships, the pride that uh, desires to grow its way like a root into the cracks of this local body. And I pray, God, that you would continue to root that out by giving us grace to know and see and walk with Christ through your word this morning. Shine your goodness and care and light on who we are, that we might see our need for Christ, we might see him clearly, and we might desire to walk with him. Because, Lord, it is truly our desires that we follow. And so transform our desires this morning. We pray all these things in the name of Christ. Amen. In verse 5, the Apostle Paul says, Have this mind among yourselves, which is in Christ Jesus. In saying this, Paul is changing gears in the discussion of corporate humility or corporate unity through personal humility. He's changing gears. And he's, he's told the Philippians about how to pursue personal humility. But here he begins to kind of roll out its source. This could be compared to the difference between telling someone how to drink water and then telling them where to get it. He's already told them how, but now he's telling them where. He introduces a a humility of mind that is alien to them. It's outside of them. It's not in them, but they have access to it. So much so that he can say that it is theirs. This is significant because the kind of humility that he is about to hold up before them cannot be produced in and of themselves. You cannot produce Christ-like humility in and of yourself. You cannot do it. And that's why the Apostle Paul is about to hold Christ up before us. Christ is their only hope for the life that he is calling them to. 
And so Paul is unraveling that mystery we talked about last week of how a group of minds can have one mind. It is to submit to and pursue the mind or way of thinking Christ had. We need a mind transplant. It's going to hurt. We need a mind different than our own. As a teenager, I had the privilege of watching Michael Jordan play basketball. Uh, Michael Jordan's considered to be uh, the greatest basketball player of all time. You can find some forums on the internet that where you know, like they show like him versus everybody else in the world. Um, Michael Jordan um, really defines what it means to be successful as a basketball player. He has one college national championship of which he, he hit the winning shot with 16 seconds left in the game. He has six NBA world championships, two Olympic gold medals. He led the NBA in steals three times and scoring 10 times, was the rookie of the year, defensive player of the year once, and he played in 14 all-star games. When he had the ball in his hands with the game on the line, he shot 50%. He shot better when the game was on the line than he actually did when it didn't matter as much. This guy defines what it means to play basketball. All that to say he was pretty good. So if I, or if you, or if we are going to learn to play basketball, would it be better to read a book about how basketballs are made or to spend every day learning to play basketball with Michael Jordan? Which would be better? Spending time with that one who, who really embodies what it means to be, to play, to live basketball. So likewise, the type of humility that Paul has in mind is not going to be the result of simply understanding what humility is. I I suspect that is why he does not continue his practical instruction on humble living. He doesn't do what he did in uh, 1 Corinthians 13 about love. Love is this, love is this, love is this, love is this. He doesn't do that. He could do that, but he chooses not to do that. He rolls out a person. He holds up a person. He introduces the one who defines and embodies humility. Humility is, is not simply the pursuit of a character trait, but the pursuit of a person. Humility is not the pursuit of a character trait, but the pursuit of a person. This is challenging. This will mess with your pride because... You can study humility and understand humility in your pride. You cannot submit and follow to Christ, follow Christ in your pride. Because you have to submit and bend and obey and be broken and be remade. They're very different endeavors. Verse 6 begins to describe the contours of the humility of Christ. And here we begin to see the dim outline of humility. It it becomes clearer to us. It says, speaking of Christ, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. I have fathered five children over the last 10 years, and I've learned one thing for sure. Children have extraordinarily strong hands. It's as if God has given them extraordinarily strong grip in order to keep other bigger kids from taking their, toy, their toys. My fourth, Johanna's two. She weighs about 30 pounds or so. And it's next to impossible to get something out 
of her little grasp. Her grip reveals a heart that is unwilling to let go of what she thinks is rightfully hers. You can pull and tug and pull and tug. But it's pretty hard to get out, even though she's so small. But Jesus is not like Johanna. Paul says in verse 6 that Jesus did not hold on to or cling on to or grasp at his equality with God. He is willing to let go of what is rightfully his. When he says Jesus did not count or consider equality with God something to be grasped, he is letting us in on the mind or thought process of Christ. Because remember, he's telling us, have the mind of Christ. And so he's letting us in on what that is. We see that his humble action took root in the soil of his humble thinking. This is the mind of Christ. Humble consideration. Look with me back at verse 3, where Paul says, Consider others more important than yourselves. Here he uses a similar word, same root word, as in verse 6. Paul is showing that Christ-like humility first thinks or counts, or considers, and then acts. Humility takes purposefulness. You have to be humble on purpose. You have to think about things. You have to consider them. You have to count them. You have to understand and think about what's happening. You have to understand yourself and to consider others better than yourselves in all circumstances, or your pride will come out. And so humility takes consideration. We can't miss what Christ willingly let go of. He let go of the position that he eternally shared with God in relationship. Equality with God. Christ-like humility does not cling on to status or position, but is willing to step down. Humility is a staircase, not an escalator. Humble living is step-by-step, grace-saturated, purposeful pursuit of others' interests. There is no easy way down. We want to get on something that's just going to take us down and take us down. And then when we get to the bottom, we're going to be humble. That ain't how it works. It's a staircase that you step down and down and purposefully down in all the things that you do. You are being called because this is how Christ is, how he was. You're being called to step down into humility, not holding on to your position or your status because Christ did not hold on to position or status. He did not grasp onto equality with God. There is no easy way down. Paul further explains what is meant that Christ did not grasp onto equality with, with God by saying in verse 7, but he emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. So in English, we have this saying that kind of illustrates the opposite of the point that Paul is making or what he's describing. It can often be said that a, that a guy is really full of himself, meaning that he's very prideful. But this verse explains that the one who had no ill qualities to empty himself of willingly poured himself out 
by taking the position of a servant, a slave even. The way that Christ expresses humility is not by becoming something less than God, but by adding on or taking on a lower position in nature. The way that Christ took on on all this was by being born in the likeness of men, or, or simply put, taking on flesh. The very act of him taking on flesh is stepping down. And the depth of humility revealed in this action is not readily transparent to us. This is most likely true because we don't think that we are all that different than God. We tend to make God in our own image. We tend to think of God as something kind of like me, accepting the things that that I accept and being okay with the things that I'm okay with and not liking the things that I don't like. We don't comprehend the utter highness of God and the total depravity of man. If we truly understood the highness of God, the depravity of man, we would understand the step down to be much further. We would understand the the incarnation to be something, a, a huge step down for Christ. Paul is painting a picture for the, for the Philippian church, one of a sovereign king removing his magisterial adornments and putting on the garb of a servant slave, tying a towel around his waist and taking up a towel, a basin to wash the feet of others. The step down that we see here, it's steep. And the one who is everything is making himself Nothing. The NIV uh, helps us here when it says that, that Christ made himself nothing. A king becoming a slave, the creator becoming a worm. It is hard to put into words how far the step down really is. In verse 8. And being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Christ's personal humility had no limitations. There was nothing he was too good to endure for the sake of humble obedience. Jesus' humility was self-imposed, the text tells us. In this way, Christ's humility is altogether different than any of our own. Because our humility is rooted in repentance from thinking first of our own glory and our own good. Our humility is a moving from disobedience to obedience. But for Christ, his humility should be seen only in terms of increased obedience. He's not moving from disobedience to obedience, but only growing in obedience. So the very category of his type of humility is very different than ours. He has nothing to repent of. He has no pride to put off. He doesn't have to turn around before he goes forward. But we, we do. We have to turn before we go. He doesn't have to do that. He has no repentance that he is in need of. Christ's humility is most clearly seen in the fact that he never disobeyed God. 
Many times the fact that Christ never disobeyed God doesn't strike us. Many times we think, well, of course he didn't. He was God. But Hebrews tells us that in all things, Christ was tempted just as we are yet without sin. And that because of that, he can sympathize with our weaknesses. And that we can go boldly to the throne of grace in our time of need, which is all the time. It says that he became like his brothers in all ways in the book of Hebrews. When Christ steps into humanity, humanity puts on humanity, he is fully man. When he is tempted, he really is tempted with all of the theological mysteries that go with that. He really is tempted because if he wasn't, he could not sympathize with you in, his, in your weakness. He really, really, really is fully God, fully man. This should strike us. His humility is just compounded obedience, more obedience, more obedience, more obedience. Don't let that discourage you. That is meant to encourage you. The writer of Hebrews writes in such a way to encourage you to run to him in your time of need. Not to think, oh, well, of course you didn't sin. You're God. Don't let that thought creep into your mind. Run to him because he can sympathize with you in your weakness. The last step in Paul's explanation of Christ's descent of humble obedience is simply summarized. Even death on a cross. The valley of crossed of the valley of Christ's humility is the pinnacle of shame. One can scarcely think of a more embarrassing way to die than crucifixion. Not to mention Christ's own crucifixion. An innocent man falsely tried, then stripped by the governor's guards, wrapped in a mock robe, given a faux crown, belittled and beaten, reclothed, beaten again, turned over to a state-sanctioned mob, stripped again, robbed of his clothes, nailed, nailed through in his hands and his feet, mocked by passerbys, religious leaders, and crucified criminals. He's even mocked by criminals. Then, forsaken by God. There is no lower place of earthly existence, no moment of history lower than Christ's death on a cross. There is no lower moment, no more humble moment, no greater descent. The Apostle Paul is showing us in two simple little verses that Christ went from the highest place that there could be held equality with God to the lowest place that can be had, death on a cross. There's no greater swing than that. And to see Christ acting that way and living that way is exemplary to us. He pursued that place and time in humble obedience to his father. There was no obedience that he was too good for. He says in John, Father, as he's praying, Father, let this cup pass by me, but not my will be done, your, your will be done. This is why he came. There's no obedience no thing that he would not do to obey his father. 
Christ has given us an example of humility that God intends us to follow. Do not miss that. Do not miss that. We can get wrapped up with the theological intricacies of this passage and what each word means and how it works and what we learn about Christ. And those are good and we should do that. But the point, when Paul is sitting down to write this, his intent is to hold Christ up as a prototype of humility in everything that he is saying with the expectation that we would have the same mind and that we would live the same way. Nobody gets a pass. This is the point that Paul is making. And we have to be crushed under the weight of that so that we can truly respond in obedience. If you're not crushed by the weight of that, sit in this passage, hear it, read it, pray about it, ask God to crush you with it. Nobody gets away from this passage. There there is no one sitting in this room today who's like, I'm good, got this. Nailed humility. No, No one can do that. And so we're all under this passage. The the authority of Paul to say, you should actually live like this. And that's what he's asking. There was no place, no act of service, no person, or act of obedience that he was too good for. And so how about you? How about me? Where won't you go in servant-hearted, humble obedience? Where's the place on the map? You will not go. I will not go there. Not going to do that. Not going there. Won't move there. Won't pass by there. Won't stop there. Won't drive through that part of town. Won't live in that country. Mine is India. I have to deal with that. I, I hate the thought of India. I love Indian food. But that many people doing stuff together It just messes with me, and so I have to deal with that. Because if Christ, if there was no place, no people that Christ was too good for, then then who am I to say? Who am I to say that I wouldn't do that? And so for you, what, what is that place? What act of service is too low for you? What is the thing where you say, I will do anything but that? I'll do any of it. Um... I started doing youth ministry. Uh, it was really interesting. I, at my church, I was a new believer, and the lady who was doing children's ministry, she, um, she came to me and said, Noah, I, want, I, was, I was like 22, 23. I, I, you know, I was just coming out of like crazy background, and I'd never done anything with children before. I, I grew up in a family where nobody likes kids. Like, they don't even like their own kids. And so that's just how it was. I, I never met anybody who liked kids, and I was in the kid group, so imagine the trauma of that. So this lady asks me, do you want to work with kids? And I said, absolutely not. And, and about the same time, a good friend of mine said, do you want to work with youth? And I said, well, if it's this or this, then I'll, do, I'll work with youth. And so the irony of this is that I have five children. I have a bigger family than most everybody that I know. And God is kindly using that. The, the thing that I said I wouldn't do, I have my own children's ministry now. And I'm learning. I'm learning how to love my children, how to teach them, how to speak to them. I'm learning from my wife how to speak to my children, how to teach them God's word, because this is easy for me. Teaching them is very, very, very difficult for me. And so I'm learning. God is taking me to that place that I said, not going to go there, not going to do that. And he will do this to you, and I pray that he does this to you. And if you, you put those things on the table, he, he, will, 
he will mess with them. So, so what is that area of service that you, that you will not do? So when this shows up in your bulletin, right? And you see, mm, hospitality, oof, don't really have that. Um, what, who, who's not, you know, who, who's saying, not going to do that. I will clean. I will do stuff behind the scene, but talk to people first thing Sunday morning. You know, not doing that. Ask yourself, why will I not do that? Why is there a thing, an area of service that I have in my life that I will not do? Now, you may not be good at it, and that's up to your elders and church staff to help you kind of realize, okay, that's not a great thing for you. Let's move you around. But be willing. Be willing to do the thing that needs to be done. So what place, uh, what act of service, even harder, what person, what person are you really too good to have a relationship with? Because you know it's just going to be a mess. Just going to be a mess. And, 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 and God has kindly done this to me. Um, I've led multiple small groups over the years. And, and at one time, we had five couples in a single small group that were all doing marriage counseling. Not premarital counseling, but marriage counseling together. Um, at the same time. Um, and, and that was hard. But it was a place that, that God used to say, you know what? Um, ministry, life in the church is difficult. And as this church grows, and, and God willing, it will, uh, and as you start to reach out into the community and, and you start to see folks come to Christ that don't know Jesus, have never known him, have never read the Bible, when they come into this fellowship, they will bring big bags of stuff with them, and they'll drag their stuff in, and they're going to open it up, and you're going to have to help them pick through their stuff and figure out what to keep and what to throw away, and they're not going to like you for doing that with them. But that's ministry. That's how we reach our communities, and that's what God is calling us to. So who's that person that you don't want them to show up with their bag of stuff, and you don't want to help them open their bag of stuff because it's just going to be messy? Christ didn't do that. His humility was one that steps down into the mess, takes the mess on as much as is appropriate for God himself. He takes that on so that he can sympathize with us in our weaknesses. So, so what person, place, what, what thing are you too proud for? Let's switch it, switch it around. So, so what joy are you forsaking through your unwillingness to serve? Because that's what's at stake. What lesser joys are you embracing that don't allow you the time or, or really heart space to enjoy other things? John Piper says it this way. He says, he says that many times uh, we nibble at the table of the world so that when we get to the feast of God, we're so full that we just don't have any space. And many times joy is like this. We fill ourselves up on lesser joys that we don't realize the joy that could be had in Christ. And so service is this way. God is offering us joy. Remember, complete my joy, the Apostle Paul says, by having Corporate, humili- cor- corporate unity through personal humility. This is what at stake here. Serving one another. Personal humility. In life together, your joy is at stake. So what joy are you missing out on because you're not serving other people? Because there's a place you won't go, a thing you won't do, a person that you're, you just don't want to have relationship with. How much of Christ are you missing because you won't humbly walk in obedience to him? There are aspects of who Christ is that he wants to share with you. He wants you to, to, to be in with him, to have unity with him in. 
that you will not experience if you don't humbly and obediently walk behind him doing the things that he did. Nearness to Christ is what's at stake. Humility is the joyful pursuit of a person. It's joyful. It's a hard joy, but it is joyful. And I want to encourage you in that. Pursue the person of Christ. And so in verse 9, he says, Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name. Paul says that because of all that has been said in verses 6 through 8, God has lifted his eternal son up to the highest position that can be had and has been given the name that cannot be greater. And here we see that the once exalted king has been returned to his rightful place. We see that his going to the lowest place resulted in his being raised to the highest place. We see that the one who was once called slave or servant has a name that is so high that it can only be described by the fact that all other names are under it. The greatest descriptor of the name that is given to Christ by God is the fact that all other names are under it. It's very telling. In verse 10, so that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. In two simple words, so that Paul gives us a glimpse into the mind and motivation of God. God highly exalted Christ and gave him an incomparable name so that one day every person in the world, everyone who has ever existed, will kneel in humble submission and confession to Christ the King. He put him in that place so that that would happen. What fascinates me about verses 9 and 10 is that Jesus does not exalt himself. He does not take back his rightful position. He is the humble recipient of it. In the same way that he did not cling on to what was his by nature, he also did not take back what was his by virtue. It was bestowed on him. It was done to him. It makes me think of uh, when Christ is teaching his disciples Uh, And he says, when you go to a feast or a party, take the lowest seat so that the host of the party, when he sees you sitting there, will say, no, 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 no. Come sit in this highest seat. We see this same type of thing happening, that God is taking Christ from where he was in his humility, in his incarnation, and placing him back to the place, the position that he rightly deserves. It's done to him. It's bestowed on him. Likewise, the future submission of all to him is not his doing, but something someone is doing for him. It is the outcome of his elevation to the highest place. 
So we can see that at every step, Christ's humble way of thinking results in humble action. Even those things that exalt him, that expose his greatness, he is still humble in all of them. And so Christ humbly let go of equality with God and came in the flesh. Christ humbly served others while on earth. Christ humbly obeyed God even to death on a cross. Christ remained humble even in his being raised up to the highest place and given the highest name. And this is the mind we should have, that we can have, and that we do have in Christ. We have full access to the mind of Christ, the way of thinking that moved him to live and act the way that he did act and does act. We have access to that. It is our mind, Paul says. By the Spirit in Christ, we have this mind. Christ will even remain humble on the day that all bow down and confess his lordship because as the end of verse 11 tells us, all this will be done to the glory of God the Father. The humility of Christ endures. So imagine this moment with me. Christ the King King will stand over the bowed heads of every person that has ever lived. And his ears will hear the chorus of confession that he truly is Lord. And he will divert all the glory pointed at him to his Father. Instead of receiving that for himself, he diverts that all for the glory of God. The humility of Christ endures, it remains, it is who he is. Permanently, he is humble. His humble way of thinking motivates him, directs him to be humble all the time, and that's the mind that we have access to. It is our mind, Paul tells us. So the apostle has taken the long way to say one very clear thing. Corporate unity through personal humility is the result of pursuing Christ. Our humble, exemplary, obedient, Father-glorifying servant king. So verses 1 through 11, this is, a, this is a helpful summary for us. Corporate unity through personal humility is the result of pursuing Christ, who is our humble, exemplary, obedient, Father-glorifying servant king. That's who we're after. That king. So how do you pursue the person of Christ in humility? Let's get a little, a, little, a little practical here. Because I do want to leave you with something to consider, something to think about doing. So how do you pursue the person of Christ in humility? Um, firstly, become a slave to Christ. Become a Christian. Many times we don't use that language when we're sharing the gospel with people. Uh, We sometimes tell them that God loves you and has a wonderful plan for your life. Uh, But the call of Christianity is be a slave. That sets the table very well for, for what God has called us into. You can be a slave to sin or a slave to Christ. Slave to sin or slave to righteousness. And that's what's at stake for us. And so my, my challenge for you this morning is that 
you need to be saved from God. You need to be saved by God. You need to be saved to God. And you need, you need to be saved for God. You need to be saved from the wrath of God, by the grace of God, into relationship with God for all of God's purposes. That is the gospel. Your problem is with God if you do not walk with Christ today. If you don't know him, you've not trusted him, your problem is with God. But he's provided a solution for you in Christ. Christ's death on the cross, his resurrection, that you might have unity with God. You might be brought to God in relationship by faith. And that after that, as you come into that relationship, that he has a purpose for you, that you would live for him, for his purposes, for his glory. That's what God is calling us to, that we become a slave to him. So, so first, we have to have this relationship with Christ, this unity, access to that mind by the Spirit. We must be Christians before humility even makes any sense. Genuine Christ-like humility. So secondly, consider others more significant than yourself. So second thing on the list, consider others more significant than yourself. So think the way you ought to think. And then when you don't, ask God to make you and your thinking like Christ. Pursue thinking about people as if they were more important than yourself. This is not going to be natural to you. You're going to have to work at this. I have to work at this. So how do, I, how do I direct my mind, because of God's grace towards me, how do I direct my mind to think that person is better than I am, that person is better than I am, and that person is better than I am, and that person, and that person, and that person, so that I become, like we talked last, about last week, the least important person in the room, and that, that I really consider myself as that. That that becomes a real consideration and view of myself, because this is how Christ thinks. He does all things for the good of others, considering them more important than himself. And that is a divine mystery that God would function that way in Christ. Third, joyfully serve others. Find someone and serve them. I would suggest start at home and work your way out to the church and then work your way out a little further. Uh, you have people in your home, uh, depending on who you live with, how, how those dynamics work. You have people at your home that need to be served in new ways. Don't be content with the way that you served them in the past. Don't keep a record of goods. I've done this in the past, and so I'm, I'm good. Um, find new ways to serve those people in your home. Your home. Find God-gifted ways to serve in your church. Try everything and let the elders of your church tell you, all right, you're good at this, not so great at that. We want you doing this. This is a good spot for you. Test out your abilities in service in this body together. Be willing to do it all. And see where God leads you. Find someone and serve them. Start in your home and then move on to serving your church. And God will continue to give more opportunities. Four, humbly obey God. Obey God in new ways. Study God's word. Read God's word. Look over God's word. Whatever place you are at your life, whatever you have time for. Look into God's word and find new obedience. Areas where you have not obeyed him before and obey him. Put on new obedience. Not because God loves us because we obey him, but because he has loved us. We are his children and we want to obey him in joy. He wants to give you greater joy in greater obedience. 
Obey him. Pick one thing and humbly do it as Christ would. I don't know what that thing is for you. I can't, you know, I can trot out all kinds of things, but this is, this is something that you have to do face-to-face with God in relationship, asking him, where should I obey? What's a new type of obedience for me? For some of us, it's going to mean um, simply speaking kindly to others, just making a decision to say kind things to people because that's the way that Christ would have spoken most of the time. He gets on some people's cases. He has reasons for that. But us, we're, you know, our, our position should be speak kindly to people. For others of us, it's going to mean um, considering whether or not you should pack up your house and move to another country uh, that people who don't have a Bible in their language could hear the gospel. There's kind of a scale for you guys. Start where you are. Be obedient to God. Only you, before your Savior, can, can really know what that is. So you may, that means you're going to have to have some time, right? So uh, I tell people, you know, Americans, if you have enough time to read your Bible, uh, then everybody feels like you've got too much time. Like, make time, extra time, to just sit and hear from God and talk to him and listen and take a walk and space and time to hear him. You're going to have to have that to, to do what we're talking about. So, we could continue that list, and if you want more ideas, you have some fantastic elders that can help you work through all the details of that. But we really have the, we have the outline in mind. We, we know what we should be building, right? It's clear to us what God is calling us to build. And so we began our time this morning with a, with a pile of Legos and an overwhelming command to build something together. But now we have a prototype, something to look at, Something to imitate, someone to imitate, someone to pursue. Christ himself. We even have access to his mind and his motivation. And we also know that this monument, this thing we're being called to build together, corporate unity through personal humility, this monument, that is not a monument to us or even, even to this church body, but it's like Christ, it is for the glory of the Father. And so the question this morning is, is, will you get down humbly into this mess? Putting the pieces together so that together we will look like Christ. Something that is a monument built for his glory, for our good. Something that looks like Christ. Will you commit to doing that? personal humility that leads to corporate unity that is all for God's glory. Will you do that? Pray with me this morning. Father, we do ask that you would give us grace to get down into the mess and start picking up the pieces and putting them together in such a way that honors and glorifies you because the end result in our pursuit of Christ will be that we look like Christ together and that that is glorifying to you. That is why Christ died. That is why he came. That was why he was raised. And so now, in humble submission to you, we bow our knees and confess you are Lord. We love you, Lord. Continue to humble us. Make us like Christ. We pray it in his name. Amen.